When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey, welcome to another edition of Modern Day Hysteria, Modern Day Debate. I am very excited to have you here and very excited to have these two gentlemen here. This is going to be an epic debate. And strictly speaking, the title is, Is There Enough Evidence to Say? This is going to be an epic debate. Okay, you have got that taken care of. Thanks for your patience. Good. So this is going to be an epic debate. And the title officially is, Is There Enough Evidence to Say That Jesus Rose from the Dead? So I am first going to, since Samuel will be, will be speaking in the affirmative and he will be speaking first, I'm going to let Samuel introduce himself in just a moment, and then I'll let Paul introduce him, himself. And in the meantime, I just want to mention that we will have a Does God Exist debate next Thursday, so I'm very excited about that with mystery speakers. So I hope you tune in for that Does God Exist debate. Now I'm going to kick it back over, as mentioned, to Samuel to introduce himself. So Samuel, very excited to have you here if you want to give just a two-minute background on yourself. Sure thing. Yeah, I'm, it's really a privilege to be here, to be able to participate in a debate of this nature. And uh, I'd just like to, you know, just thank Paul for uh, being willing to have this dialogue with me. Uh, I, I was born in a Christian family. My father is a pastor. I was a pastor. Uh, I've, of course, left my church recently to pursue a full-time apologetics ministry. Uh, I The reason I got into apologetics really was because I got hammered in a di dialogue with my Muslim friend. That's really what got me started. Uh, and in fact, most of my debates, I think I've gotten myself hammered. But the point about all this uh, is to uh, basically learn from one another. And uh, to, if there's any questions that I don't know, my, my, it will be a true, uh, the right thing to do really would be to go back, look at the evidence and to come back. That's what I've done. I'm looking forward to learn from Paul as well today. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Samuel. And now I'm going to turn over to Paul. So Paul, two minutes to give us your explanation of how you've come here today. And, and thanks as well for you being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, my name is Paul. Uh, I'm best known for running a YouTube channel called Paulagia, where I'm normally a cartoon. So I'm sorry to everyone who's looking at my real face today, but it's not the cartoon version. Um, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home, a Mennonite home. Um, I was an international Bible quizzer, and uh, I went to Bible college on a scholarship. Uh, I, was, I did very well there, went into youth ministry. Uh, it wasn't my full-time job, but I was a, a, a lay minister for both worship leading and, uh, and for Bible quizzing youth ministry for about 20 years uh, involved with that, where I memorized the Bible and taught people to memorize the Bible. 
Um, a few years back, I sought to, rather than take everything on authority, I sought to kind of look at my faith afresh because I felt like I needed to learn some apologetics just like you guys. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, I uh, it took me in a different direction. It, it, it caused me to doubt everything I had been taught. Uh, and when looking at it with the fresh eyes, I really finally decided there wasn't sufficient evidence for me to any longer believe that there is a God or believe that the uh, the Bible is a, a, a document that's that's worth basing my life on. So I've uh, I'm kind of I've flipped there. So I consider myself an atheist, and I have a, a YouTube channel that largely deals with young Earth creationism. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And by the way, I just want to mention that I will be putting links to both of the speakers in the description below, and that way you can more conveniently find each speaker. So uh, those links are to come. And thank you, both of you speakers, for being here again. And so we're going to jump right into it. So as mentioned, it's a formal debate, so it will be timed. And we have, just to give you a broad overview of what we're going to have for our format, a 12-minute opening statement from each speaker, starting with Samuel, then an eight-minute rebuttal response from Samuel and Paul each, and then eight minutes of cross-exam, which I'm really excited. You, you don't really see that uh, too often in debates, but I think it's one of the most fun things you can have in a debate, and then 30 minutes of Q&A, and then five-minute closings from both Samuel and Paul. So, as mentioned, we're going to jump right into it. So, Samuel, I am starting the clock, and here we go. The floor is yours. Thank you. And uh, just want to say that, you know, before I start, that uh, we, we really are approaching this as a dialogue, although the format is a formal debate. Uh, let me begin by saying that although I grew up in a Christian family, um, very often I found myself questioning my faith. Every time I would be asked a Christian, one of the things I would do is to go back and actually try to see whether uh, the evidence matched up. Uh, but of course, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I should admit at the start that I am a presuppositionalist. I presuppose the Bible to be true. Make no apologies for that. Uh, and uh, the, when I was growing up, one of the things that happened is really that I heard a lot of stories about people being raised from the dead. Uh, most notably from uh, a, a quite a famous American evangelist, or was it a German evangelist, uh, in Africa who raised someone from the dead. Uh, and I used to initially believe all these stories until I got to a point where, it, it, especially nowadays, you find a lot of them from the America, especially, you know, being raised from the dead, selling books. You know where it goes from there, big ministry, a lot of checks and all that. And I began to get skeptical about resurrection claims. So uh, I realized there are a lot of other cultures that talk about resurrections being raised from the dead and so forth. But one of the things that I really look forward into this uh, debate is I consider the traditional arguments, which I will be presenting uh, later, uh, which has been popularized by the likes of Mike Lacona and William Lane Craig. But as you go through these arguments, one of the things I ask myself is this, did the empty tomb convince the early disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead? And as I examined the Gospels, I found that the answer was no. Uh, in fact, Mary Magdalene, when uh, she was confronted with the empty tomb, uh, actually, what she ends up doing is uh, she ends up saying they have stolen the body. You know, that, that's the first response, the naturalistic response uh, was the first thing that she resorted to. What happens next is basically you have the postmortem appearances of Jesus Christ that appears to Mary Magdalene, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Of course, Luke documents that. 
Uh, and then you, you have a lot of these stories that come up uh, about Jesus appearing to people. And these guys come back to Jerusalem that same day, those two guys on the road to Emmaus, the women followers who had claimed to see in Christ. And they begin to tell Jesus, bear in mind, of course, that these are early eyewitness accounts. These disciples are already aware in Luke 24 about the empty tomb, and they don't believe the resurrection. So I came to the conclusion that early eyewitness accounts, uh, the, the empty tomb, uh, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus Christ were not even sufficient to convince the early disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead. In fact, even when Jesus came, uh, he says to them, you know, are you still doubting? Give me a fish to eat. They did, and even then, they still didn't quite believe uh, the resurrection that Jesus had truly been raised from the dead. So I began to ask myself, instead of relying on the traditional arguments, what was it that was the foundation of the apostles believe in the resurrection. And I came to the conclusion uh, based on Luke 24, that it's only when Jesus opened the scriptures to them that they began to uh, become clear that indeed Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So it's okay to go to the empty tomb. It's okay to talk about uh, Jesus being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It's okay to talk about the post-mortem appearances. But I think the main thing that convinced the disciples ultimately, the foundation of their belief in the resurrection was that the scriptures testified. And that's what you find in 1 Corinthians 15. Even Paul, when he's citing that early creed, which originated between three, uh, between the first five years uh, of Jesus' death, you find Paul saying that, According to the scriptures, he, Jesus died, uh, you know, was buried and rose again. So that is the first thing. Uh, and of course, I, I would like to get to that in the end. But due to time, I'm going to go to uh, the main traditional arguments. Bear in mind that if you get to people who just randomly pop up and say, hey, this guy has been raised from the dead, regardless of whether it's Christian or otherwise, I'm going to have my skepticism to that. I'm a skeptic when people talk about resurrections, but the reason primarily I believe it, it's because it is not a random event, but because it is found prophesied in the Jewish scriptures, which long predate Jesus Christ. Now, to the traditional arguments that I believe complement uh, the foundation that these things were, in fact, in the Jewish scriptures. First of all, that Jesus was tried and crucified under Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. Uh, those of you who follow the resurrection arguments, you'll be quite familiar with this. But let me cite a few historical sources uh, that uh, do point to this. First of all, you have the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, the Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 43a, for example, which clearly states that uh, they were responsible for Jesus' death. In fact, let me quote it. This is coming close to uh, in between the first half to the end of the second century AD. It says on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hung because he practiced sorcery uh, and enticed Israel to apostasy. The Jews claim responsibility for his death. You have, uh, of course, uh, the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, uh, that I know that Paul has dealt with as well uh, in some of his responses. Tacitus, he says about that, uh, the, uh, that Christus suffered the extreme penalty uh, crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius at one of the hands of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. You have Syrians, a uh, writer by the name of Mara Basarapion, who really was not involved uh, in anything on that. He was not a Christian. He was a Stoic philosopher writing in what scholars believe must have been 73 AD. Uh, Syrian philosopher Mara Basarapion writing to his son in prison says, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was after that that their kingdom was abolished. So you have 
Jews admitting to killing him. You have the Romans uh, who admit to performing the execution. You have Syrian writers that write this. Uh, of course, there are a host of others that I could resort to, but due to time, I, I haven't did gone to the gospel accounts. We are treating them as independent accounts. But uh, let's go to the second point. Uh, taking, of course, my first point that Jesus was tried, crucified under the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. The second point, I think, is a rather uh, important one, and that is Jesus was buried in the tomb of a Jewish nobleman by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I know for a fact that uh, Paul has questioned this, and I'll really look forward to hear his objections to this. But here is my, my take uh, on the fact why I believe Jesus was indeed uh, buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, first of all, uh, the burial account is attested in independent sources. You have uh, the synoptic gospels that testify to it. And number two, uh, this is where the uh, probability theories come in. Uh, you find that the Jewish Sanhedrin was really hated by the early Christians. The, the question you need to ask is why, was the, why were the Jewish Sanhedrin uh, being praised uh, for doing something good by Jesus? In other words, if, uh, to, to use a more American illustration, um, if you have Hillary praising Trump or you have CNN praising Trump for something, uh, that the chances are that Trump must have done something right. Uh, and if you find CNN basically saying that Trump did something wrong, um, you, you would kind of expect that that would not lead to a lot of credibility. But the fact that CNN, for example, were to praise Trump, uh, you know, may lend more credibility to whatever they are giving him credit for. Um, because the Trump saga is well known to us in Malaysia as well. Um, now, uh, over there, you get to uh, the other the other thing that I think that is quite important in the uh, burial account of Jesus is that there is no competing burial story. Uh, so if uh, there are any competing burial accounts for Jesus, Jesus being buried elsewhere, being thrown in a common grave, for example, that would be interesting to hear. Very quickly now to my third point, um, that on the third day following his death, the women followers discovered the tomb empty. Uh, the empty tomb for me has to be one of the most important things in establishing the resurrection of Jesus, because uh, it, Jerusalem was the birthplace of Christianity. Had it not been for the resurrection, um, people could have, you know, basically walked down to the tomb. It was a public location. The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea could have walked down there and said that the tomb was empty. Uh, but we find no such uh, reports. In fact, the earliest conspiracy theories that we have seems to indicate uh, that uh, the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So, and in doing so, uh, affirm the empty tomb. The other thing I want to quickly point out again, uh, due to time, is that there was an embarrassment factor in pointing to the women followers discovering the tomb empty. That is, uh, women's testimony was not accepted in the Jewish court of law back in the day. Uh, sorry, feminists, but uh, that, that was how, how it was back in the day. Uh, so it would have been much more uh, preferable for the apostles to have said either Peter or John had found a body instead. That for the third point that on the third day following his resurrection, the women followers discovered the tomb empty, fought, and finally, that Jesus' disciples... 40 seconds. Thank you. Uh, Jesus' disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe in the resurrection despite having every predisposition to the contrary. We have to remember, of course, that the Jewish messianic expectation was that they expected a, a powerful messiah, a political one, something like a new King David of that sort. They were not expecting a dying and rising Messiah. So what would have convinced these disciples that uh, to the extent that they were willing to lay down their lives, be martyrs for this, uh, that uh, 
Jesus indeed had raised from the dead. It must have been the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. These disciples had to believe this thing, or else why else would they die uh, for a lie that they themselves created? Um, so they had no pains, no rewards if they were to lie and come up with this. In fact, it would go against their own fundamental belief. The question really has to be asked, what was their motivation? For me, as I said earlier, the foundation for all of this was that scripture testifies. I make no apologies for believing that the scripture is indeed the word of God. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, that God has spoken and history, uh, his story, as it's aptly called, best witness to it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Samuel. So Samuel ends with uh, a minute 20 left. And now we are going to switch it over to Paul. And we had decided before the debate, uh, basically, we're going to have like flexibility on when people end. So uh, Samuel and Paul both said, well, if they go over by a little bit, as long as it's not out of reason, that's not a problem. So uh, we're going to turn the microphone over to Paul now. So Paul, setting up the timer for 12 so minutes you, uh, and the floor you is yours. Well, before I go, can you see my slides there? Yes, yes. Uh, they are still in the min minimized. I know view, they are. That's the best I could unfortunately get. No it. problem. This will mainly be for me to actually stay on track. So anyway, okay. Okay, I'll start your time right now. Okay. Go ahead. So first of all, yeah, thank you. Thanks again for having me. Um, this is a very important discussion. Obviously, Christians believe that if it isn't for the resurrection, that their faith is futile. So it's a very important thing. Uh, there's so much to say. I, I wanted to get deep into it. And part of what I wanted to do was get to the heart of it. So I actually, before the debate started, I asked for two stipulations that I would just grant uh, to Samuel. Uh, while there's a lot of interesting things that can be discussed about whether or not um, Jesus was a historical figure or not, for the point of this, that this isn't the time to discuss whether Jesus is historical. So I'm granting that he was. And if I grant that Jesus was a historical figure, the easiest second thing to grant is that he died, since every historical figure we know, you know, that's ever existed has died. So that's a relatively easy thing to grant. So I won't be challenging either of those things today. And I'll let Samuel know that in advance. Um, but what we are looking for was the historical uh, evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And of course, history doesn't, unfortunately, it's not like math where it proves what happened. What history does is it describes what probably, sorry? You Can you hear me? Samuel? I, I, I can't hear anything. You can't hear me at all? Nothing at this point. Uh, Samuel, um, is, are you sure it's not anything on your end? Don't worry, I, I no. paused the clock, Paul. Okay. Um, okay I now, can I hear hear... Paul. now I hear Paul, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Were, gotcha. you able to, uh, were you able to hear me though, uh, James? I, I, I only yeah. until the end of the two stipulations. Okay, I'll start. I'll go back. So okay, right. I'll give you extra time. So no okay. problem. Sounds good. Um, so what we're looking for today, I'll, I'll just step back for a second, is the historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And of course, unfortunately, unlike math, um, history doesn't ever prove what happened. History only describes what probably happened and gives a relative weight sort of relative certainty to to the claims that history even makes. And that certainty is always apportioned to several things, including the evidence at hand. So stronger evidence uh, is given more weight than, than weaker evidence. Um, the conventionality of the claim is considered. So for example, it would take less evidence for me to convince you that Abraham Lincoln had a horse than it might take for, if I wanted to try and prove that Abraham Lincoln uh, was a vampire hunter, for example. Uh, the conventionality of the claim comes into play. And all things being equal, 
in history, the amount of time that has passed also plays a factor. So something that took, all things being equal, if something took place further back in history, we're less certain of it than something that took place now. And unfortunately, that's just the way history works. These are just the realities of the historical method. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, it obviously would be a miracle. And in history, by definition, a miracle would have to be the least probable explanation. If we're talking about something like rising from the dead, where natural laws would have to be suspended and a supernatural being of some sort would have to intervene, that is, by definition, the least probable explanation. Now, this isn't some kind of weird historical naturalism where history says there can't be a supernatural or there can't be miracles. All it says is that history, unfortunately, can't say that something was a miracle. It can't get, ascribe something to a miracle because, by definition, as I said, it's the least likely. So any evidence for a miracle would have to overcome that tremendous burden of being the lowest probability event. Um, and anytime you even have a mundane explanation, history would have to say that that mundane explanation by default is actually more likely than the historical one, given all things being equal. So what are these facts that, we're, that history wants to explain? Well, given that I've already said that Jesus lived and that Jesus died, I've granted those, in my opinion, and I know... Samuel had a few other points that uh, he felt were facts, and I'll talk about those. In my opinion, we really only have one fact that needs explaining, and that is that people said that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, unfortunately, that puts us in the realm of testimony, and I'm sure everyone listening has heard um, time before where they've heard stories about how testimony is not the best way of, of getting uh, evidence, and uh, it's unreliable, memories can be changed, memories can be affected, uh, witnesses can be led, all those kind of things. Um, but it's what we have. So we need to talk about that. So if you have eyewitness testimony, what would you want? Well, obviously you would want firsthand testimony is best. It's better than secondhand, thirdhand hearsay. You'd want contemporary his, uh, contemporary evidence. You'd want it to be within the time frame of what's happening. Ideally, you'd like multiple accounts. Obviously, more accounts would be better than fewer accounts. You'd want those accounts to be independent of each other. So, for example, if I was to tell my three children a story and those and my three children went off and told other people, they are not three sources all of a sudden for this account. It all came from me. There was really only uh, one source there. While you want the, the testimony to be independent, you also want it to corroborate. You want the stories to back each other up. You want the details to match up. And lastly, you would really ultimately want someone who's unbiased. You want your testimony to come from someone without skin in the game, who doesn't actually care one way or the other how things go. So most people, and as Samuel said, he looks at the Gospels and he believes the Gospels. Most people take the Gospels as their primary source for why Jesus rose from the dead. So what kind of sources are these? Well, unfortunately, even though they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are actually anonymous books. The authors of those books did not sign them. The, the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John came centuries later uh, out of various traditions based on some ideas, but if we want to talk about that, we can, but they're anonymous. They, they don't, the authors don't say that. And also, even worse, the authors don't even claim to be eyewitnesses. Nowhere in the Gospels does it say, I saw this or I saw that. So these are not, this doesn't pass the firsthand criteria. Um, are they contemporary? Well, uh, while there's some dispute, most scholars come around the fact that the first gospel written, Mark, was written around 65 AD, um, which is unfortunately a lifetime after the event. Um, there's, uh, if you look at the latest 
scholarship based on life expectancy in the first century Rome, it's around 20 to 30 years. So six, 30 years, 60 years afterwards, that's a full lifetime after the event. And a quick fun fact, the original Gospel of Mark actually has no post-resurrection appearances of any kind. The, the original ending of Mark just ends with the empty tomb and the women promising to be silent and nothing after that. These sources are not independent of each other. Uh, Mark was written first. Uh, it's the shortest book. We know for a fact that Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark. Uh, in fact, 97% of Mark is in Matthew, 88% of Mark is in Luke, and sometimes they are copied verbatim, word for word, in the original Greek, so we know that these are not independent sources. And recent scholarship by Richard Bockheim and others um, even attests that John utilized Mark when it was writing. One quick example, uh, when the two books use the same stories, they're in exactly the same order, John and Mark, without variation, uh, unlike um, Matthew and Luke, which felt free to jumble stories. It's a little bit too coincidental for it not to have been uh, there. So, and I'm not going to give all these corroboration examples, um, but we know for a fact that the Gospels also don't uh, line up on all the details. So, uh, the one example I will stick with is, did Jesus die before or after the Passover? It seems like it can't be both. Uh, but the Synoptic Gospels say that Jesus died after the Passover, whereas John says that he, he died before the Passover. And why did John do that? Well, John wanted to make a, a point in his whole gospel. His whole gospel is about how Jesus is the Passover lamb. So naturally, he needed Jesus to die before the Passover. So he changed it for a theological reason. And all the gospels are theological books. They're not unbiased. They all had a point of view. They very much cared about this. So what if we go to the extra biblical? Well, in terms of extra biblical, there actually is none. We have no eyewitnesses that say they saw Jesus that aren't from the Bible. At best, what we have is external sources that are reporting what was believed about Jesus, not exactly what happened. Uh, and for time, I'm going to skip the zombie story, but uh, I may come back to that. Uh, it seems like something that should be extra biblical. A lot of people point to circumstantial evidence. They say, well, the church exists, so therefore Jesus must have been raised. Well, obviously, we know that many churches rise. It's a mundane claim that your church rose and faced persecution. I mean, this does not require a supernatural event. We know that. Um, so that's a mundane explanation. Uh, no one would die for a lie. Well, we, we just uh, had the anniversary of 9-11. We know that people will die for a lie. I know that uh, a lot of Christians will say, well, people won't die if they know it was a lie. Well, we do know that we have examples of that as well. Um, and I will also uh, probably talk a little bit more about how we even know, did any of the apostles actually die? Uh, or we know they died, but how did they die? And could they have, did they recant? And could they have saved their lives or made their lives better if they recanted? Maybe they did recant. We don't actually have any of that. Um, but let's get quickly to the, the main source that I think we all agree is the best source, and that is Paul. Now, Paul is the only person in the New Testament who says his name and says that he saw Jesus alive. He's the only one. A problem with Paul is he didn't see physical Jesus. Paul saw a vision. If you look at the uh, accounts in Acts in uh, chapters 9 and chapter 22, Paul's companions didn't see who Paul was talking to. They didn't see anyone. If there was a physical body there, they would have seen him. Um, this happened after the ascension into heaven. Jesus was in heaven already. It seems unlikely that he reaffirmed his physical body, came down for a quick cameo to Paul, if so, that's not in the same realm of raising from the dead. That's a whole different being. Uh, and he walks through walls, all those kind of things. And But we also know in Paul's letters, he continues to describe all of his revelations as visions. He uses the word visions. Paul knows that he saw 
what he would call a vision, we would call a hallucination, which again is a very mundane claim. We know hallucinations happen. Um, Paul, I think, just letting you know, you have two minutes and 35 okay, seconds. Perfect. I, I, well, then I have better than I needed. Uh, okay. So uh, the first the first Corinthians 15 creed, uh, which has already been mentioned, um, we'll talk about it a little more, I'm sure, in the cross, but uh, it is a creed. It is essentially a nursery rhyme. It is a rhyme. It's a It's a statement that was made that tells Paul what people, other people believe. This is not something that Paul can attest to. This is merely something that Paul is repeating from other people. Again, so this more than 500 claim, it's the only place it happened, but it's it's essentially, it's in this rhyme. So again, this creed is simply what was believed at the time, not an eyewitness as to what happened. So did anyone actually witness a resurrected Jesus? Well, there's three possibilities. Yes, some of them maybe did, and they were telling the truth. Uh, again, history would have a hard time saying so, but it's possible that some of them are telling the truth and saw Jesus alive. Um, there's another possible answer is no, they didn't, and everyone is lying about it. Well, that is that seems a little conspiracy theorist, but it is certainly a possible answer. Um, the answer that I think happened is that no, no one saw Jesus, but in fact, they were mistaken. We know that people are mistaken all the time. Their minds play tricks on them. They can convince themselves of things. Uh, being mistaken is a very mundane claim. And again, a mundane claim is always going to be preferable to um, the impossible miracle claim. Not the impossible miracle claim, but the lowest percentage miracle claim. So in conclusion, I fully feel there's insufficient evidence to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Miracles are the least possible uh, historical idea. The supernatural claims we do have are from very problematic sources. Mundane solutions have extremely adequate explanatory power, so therefore the resurrection does not meet the burden of proof of historicity. Excellent. Thank you very much, Paul. And Paul ends with about 40 seconds to spare. Oh, so we will switch over back to rebuttal, or I should say Samuel, for his rebuttal. And so these are eight-minute rebuttals. I'm just going to set the clock. And then we're going to switch it over to Samuel. So, Samuel, I'm starting the clock, and the floor is yours. One of the things I wanted to say uh, earlier on that I, I didn't got, quite get to saying was that, uh, that the facts that I presented in my opening speech uh, were what I regard to be, again, I think Paul is absolutely right here when he says that when we talk about historical facts, we are not talking about them as if we would mathematical facts. Uh, in historical fact, there is an element of uh, doubt that we can cast on things because these things happened in the past. And bear in mind that for me, as I said in the start, my foundation for believing in the resurrection was the scriptures itself. Now, um, I would just like to, in this time, what I didn't say, yeah, getting back to what I didn't say, uh, was that if you take the four facts that I presented, or what I believe were the four things that we have strong evidence for, I believe the resurrection is the best explanation of these four combined with the testimony of scripture. So I believe that amounts to sufficient evidence uh, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, but let me, in this uh, instance, explore what Paul has said in his opening speech. Uh, he, he has said that miracle is the least uh, probable explanation uh, or even the mundane explanations are better. Now, I think in, in some sense, I do agree with that. But although I have to also admit uh, that uh, th this itself is an assertion that you hear a lot of time, extraordinary uh, claims require extraordinary evidences. But insofar as a claim, if you actually examine the irony of it, this itself is an extraordinary claim. And one wonders what evidence is there for this. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying you don't need to give evidence, but I'm saying that the claim itself 
extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence itself is something that we don't have evidence for. In fact, this is something we presuppose, uh, which is fine, which is fine. Uh, and but I just want to bear that in mind that also that it's the worldview of. Uh, that uh, that Paul himself has admitted. Uh, Paul has said that you know that it's a it's a worldview thing. If you if you hold to a naturalistic worldview, uh, you would re you would see the supernatural explanations as the least possible. But that's not that's not in any way. I'm not condemning that in any way. In fact, as I said in the opening speech, even the uh, the the disciples themselves opted for what they thought was the, the naturalistic explanations that the body had been stolen and all that. So just making those statements out there. Now, just I want to respond to a few things that Paul said uh, in his opening speech. I, I hope I have time to get around to them. Um, we only have established one fact uh, that Paul says that Jesus, that people claim Jesus rose from the dead. Paul also says that we do not have any uh, eyewitnesses account. There is no one who actually is an eyewitness account. In fact, I would beg to differ on that point because in Acts chapter 5 verse 32, uh, we see the apostle Peter speaking to the Sanhedrin saying, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Paul is saying that, now I'm not sure if Paul's, apologias uh, point, Confusion here because there are two Pauls here in this in this debate. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure if Paul just point is really that you don't have them saying themselves uh, that that you know from from the horse's mouth itself that they don't. I hope Paul Ogia can you know you can clarify that later. But as in so much as the disciples bearing witness to this, you have Peter in trial saying we were witnesses of these things. In fact, I think John towards the end of his gospel say, this is the beloved disciple that you know is writing these accounts. Uh, John himself is an eyewitness, uh, is an eyewitness uh, to the event he describes in his gospel. Uh, so I, I think that is something to be considered. Uh, back to the other question that I found quite interesting that you raised, Paulogia, and that is um, that, uh, uh, that they were not in the, uh, let, let me deal with that later. Let me first get to, uh, the question you asked on, did Jesus die before or after the Passover? Um, here is quite interesting because all the Gospels, to my knowledge, uh, actually say he died on the preparation to the, the preparation. And some, some of the Gospels add the day of preparation of the Passover. In fact, if you look at uh, John's, John's account, uh, yeah, as you rightly quoted, John himself says that, uh, you know, the reason these guys didn't want to enter uh, into Pilate's places because they didn't want to get corrupted. They wanted to eat the meal later. But bear in mind, in my opening speech, uh, that I gave actually an evidence from the Jewish Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a, in which the Jews themselves say that they had Jesus hung on the eve of the Passover. So I think that would support Paul's claim, uh, uh, John's claim uh, that, you know, for Jesus to be able to, the Passover claim. Uh, but at the same time, I think also the term preparation of the Passover shouldn't be, uh, doesn't all necessarily have to mean the Friday. It can also mean the day before the Passover. So I, I, I recognize there are two different interpretations for preparation. For those who don't know, preparation could also refer to the Friday because it was a preparation to the Sabbath. But I, I believe that the, the use of the word preparation to the Passover would kind of allow it to be on the eve of the Passover itself. So I'm pretty open to that. And I'm saying I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly, but the historical source that I pointed out earlier seems to indicate it was on the eve of the Passover. Now, what about some of the uh, statements that Paul, you made on um, the Samuel, witnesses? You have two minutes and 35 seconds. Let me rush through this as quick as I can. You said that they are not independent sources. Um, first of all, I think that that's 
not quite true uh, because if you take the uh, sources, you, one of the claims that I've of, often had to look at was the supposed contradicting accounts. And actually, there's a, quite a lot of them. If you look through the Gospels, uh, the crucifixion narrative, uh, there's a lot of conflicting accounts. How do you uh, basically account for these conflicts uh, if they were, in fact, copying for one another? In fact, I think the most probable explanation here was that they basically had a common source, but that they used and developed their sources based on uh, their testimony. So, uh, they, or, or basically their theological point. So it's not entire copying, uh, not 97% uh, even to that extreme. But what I would say is that they were uh, relying on Mark uh, for the, if you take the Mark and priority view, they were relying on Mark, but they used it to their own uh, and, and that's why you get the, the contradictions. I hope you get the point of what I'm trying to say. Um, AD 65, the date for the Gospel of Mark, I don't think is the date that most conservative scholars would put it. And again, highlight on the word emphasis on the word conservative. I think most scholars by far put it before AD 62, uh, but I don't have time to explain how that happens. Um, these, you mentioned that the Gospels were not, they were, they were not signed. Uh, there was no name given behind it. I think if we understood how uh, the canon of scripture worked, these gospels were not basically uh, just written and posted on, 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 on the internet as we would have it today. Uh, but rather, I believe that these gospels would have been handed down by trustworthy sources. And the way we would know that these gospels were, or, or these gospels indeed were autographs that were written by the uh, apostles themselves was through the witnesses or through the messengers that the apostles sent. For example, Paul talks about sending uh, Epaphras, uh, or sometimes he sends Timothy with the letter. When they see Timothy, they know he is official bearer to bear the letters for Paul. So um, I want to tackle the hallucination claims. Just let me make one quick statement and I'll respond later if I can. Uh, it, it's Okay to say hallucinations basically happen for individuals. Uh, psychologists say that hallucinations are things that happen for individual people in different places. But when you have groups of people hallucinating the same thing, like the disciples and, and the accounts that they say, uh, I think it cannot explain. Hallucination is not quite uh, the best explanation for that. But I'll, I'll leave it for the for the next rebuttal or the cross examination. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Samuel. So Samuel is ending with a, a few seconds left and we're going to switch it over now to paul for his rebuttal so paul okay. i'm going to start the clock right now and the floor is yours well i'm going to unfortunately i get the little bit of advantage i get to respond to both his original and the rebuttal so i'm going to actually talk about a few things so uh I, first uh Samuel, i just said the scholars agree and of course in this field we actually have two sets of scholars that is always very important to the service we have new testament scholars and we have historians and very rarely do those two actually agree. So New Testament scholars, vast majority, believe the text that they're talking about. Um, there are a few, like Bart Ehrman, who, who don't, but, uh, and we actually don't know what the majority say. Now, Gary Habermas says that he has a database of 4,000 people and he's done some great things, but he refuses to release that to anyone. So we don't actually know what the majority say. So I find that's a very poor reason to, to go with one or the other. Um, and for every, you know, for every PhD we throw uh, we can throw one on the opposite side. Um, I had, let me see. Um, I had thought you might talk about the Talmud 43. Um, you know, you took a very different tact than I did. Um, you know, my point with the Talmud 43 is that it, again, it, it affirms only that Jesus died, which is something I, I affirmed. Uh, you know, I was, I was totally fine with, with the idea that the Jesus died is the hand of Pilate. Uh, I don't think that my case rests on that. Um, the fact that he died is is rather rather benign. Um, 
you spoke about the tomb. Now, um, interestingly, the one thing we have is that Paul doesn't mention a burial method at, at, at all um, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, you had said uh, that there's the thing of embarrassment that we wouldn't talk about the women. Well, Paul doesn't actually mention the women. Paul jumps straight from burial, and he doesn't talk about Joseph of Arimathea or even a tomb. He jumps straight to uh, Cephas, to Peter, uh, being the person. So either Paul was embarrassed of the women, which is possible, or that that's actually a later tradition, that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that, that the women at the tomb wasn't yet, wasn't yet widely distributed. I mean, this might be something that was made up later. Um, uh, and so when we talk about the women at the tomb, why would we use this thing of embarrassment? Well, if you read Mark, Mark very clearly has a theme in this gospel that the disciples and the family had no idea what Jesus was doing. They never caught on. They, they, they seem like idiots. You're right. Um, and it's always the outsiders who recognize what's up with Jesus. So there was the anonymous woman who anointed him in Mark. There was the centurion in the cross who was the only one that recognized, surely this was the son of God. Then, then there was the, the until then, uh, unnamed women at the tomb. Um, this is Mark's narrative. This is Mark's literary device. Um, the, it's the outcast. It's the people who, who you would never expect. And that's part of the narrative because the Jews weren't expecting it, as you said. Um, this is part of the narrative device that Paul says. This isn't the embarrassment. This is their pride. This is on their, this is on their badge. Um, I want to uh, talk about. Um, I wanted to go to. Let me go to the apostles or martyrs first. Uh, you, you you mentioned that you that the apostles were martyrs, and how do we do this? Well, and I said, well, we don't actually know how the apostles were, and I, and this is actually from a script I've used several times. So those of you who know me well may have heard some of this, but um, the, the Bible doesn't tell us how the apostles died. Where do we get these traditions from? John is said to have died of old age. Simon Peter uh, comes from the Acts of Peter, a book that didn't make the Bible. And that's the only place that we get that he was crucified. And that's from a hundred years after the fact. Um, the the Acts of Andrew is where we find out what happened to Andrew with his famous uh, X-shaped cross, again, third century. Um, Philip is hung upside down in the Acts of Philip, but in that one, Jesus actually appears before him, and Jesus is the one who orders that Philip be tortured with these upside down hangs. Like, I mean, so obviously that's why the Acts of Philip didn't make the Bible, but these are the kind of sources that you're talking about that are the traditions. And I, I, I won't go through all 12, but these are, we don't know that the disciples, uh, first of all, that they died for their faith in any way. We also don't, even if they did, we have no idea. Maybe they recanted. That wouldn't be written down any, like, I mean, that's not written down here. Nor do we know that they were given an offer to recant. They may have just been killed. So I don't really find that com argument very compelling that, well, they must have, they could have, you know, they died horrible deaths. We don't know that they died horrible deaths. Um, you had talked about um, hallucinations. So I wanted to briefly talk about some studies. Um, these are these are well-known phenomenons. So there's post bereavement, hallucinatory experiences. It has its own abbreviation. Um, and I just pulled up three recent studies that, that talk about this. Um, it's an abnorm abnormal sensory experiences that are frequently reported by bereaved individuals without a history of mental disorder. Um, and they're characterized by loneliness, low mood, fatigue, anxiety, and cognitive dysfunctioning. Um, and about one third of the people, I mean, we're talking about 1993 now, about one third of the people who suffer from this report seeing, hearing, and talking to the deceased. 
as you said, you, you were willing to acknowledge that a single person might potentially have this. And, and it's a well-known study. Uh, it's a well-known phenomenon. Um, I know some people want to talk about mass hallucination, but what's more relevant is actually mass hysteria, which is a similar well-known topic. Now, mass hysteria refers to the phenomenon where rumors are spreading uh, through a receptive group of humans like wildfire, since these humans often don't realize how much of their individual perception, and I'm reading from a study here, um, even their memory... Nine seconds. Thanks. Paul. Um, you bet. Their memory depends on what they hear from other people. Wild, unsourced statements can appear to become confirmed by popular opinion, even if they don't hold an ounce of truth. And we have lots of examples of, of this in modern day. So you can go to Arizona right now and talk to many people who have seen UFOs together. Now, we don't believe them. Um, you know, these are, and why don't we believe them? Because these are supernatural claims, even though they are fully convinced and can pass lie detector tests. Sure enough, they did. Um, and similarly, along this line, I won't, I won't get into details, but uh, urban legends also very similarly spread. Um, and this is also well studied when there is a gruesome element, when there's a or supernatural element, and when there is an element of, of personal protection. These are three different studies uh, uh, that I will provide links to people if they want. Uh, urban legends spread very quickly. So e within the first couple of years, this urban legend could have been all over the place. So uh, what, what else did you talk about? Uh, we talked about the women. Um, again, the disciples believe it suddenly. Um, it's possible some of the disciples had this bereavement and they started talking to the others and you just kind of believe, start to believe it. It becomes this urban legend group think mass hysteria. Uh, these are well-known phenomenon. And again, this is far uh, easier to understand explanation than a supernatural event. There's just the, the level that you need to get to to prove the supernatural has not been met here. Um, 38 seconds. 38 seconds. You know what? I'm just going to cede my time, I think, because I my notes are scratched all over the place. So, yeah, I think we're good. All right. So, uh, Paul ends with 26 seconds left, and we're going to now move into what I am most excited about, which is cross-examination time. So, this is, like I said, you don't see this a lot in debates. It's a very exciting time. So for the first eight-minute segment of cross-exam, it's going to be Samuel asking Paul questions. And once that eight minutes is up, we'll turn the tables and it'll actually be Paul asking Samuel questions. So just setting the clock and moving on in. So the floor is yours to ask questions, Samuel. Yeah, just before asking questions, once again, I'd like to thank you, Paul, that... Uh, We've actually gone quite a bit deeper into the subject, and I just want to thank you for uh, the, the answers and the objections that you've gave. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, on with regards to um, your claim that Paul did not, let me get pull the slide up, uh, that Paul doesn't mention the burial method. Um, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that he died on the, I mean, uh, that he was uh, buried, what method do you think that Paul had in mind when he was saying that, or what do you think Paul was referring to when he said that he was buried. Well, first of all, that's, I think you would agree that that is part of the creed, correct? That that yes, was, yes. that that portion. So Paul himself is not really referring to anything. He's reciting the creed that he was handed down to. Presumably in like when he met in Galatians where it described where he met with uh, Paul and Peter, presumably that's the, the time in which he got this creed. And I'm willing to grant that. But so anyway, Paul didn't so that, but where, how was he buried? Well, we know from, uh, I know Josephus grants one exception to this. However, um, we know that standard practice 
for burial of crucifixions, and they did up to 500 in a day, uh, was mass graves. So right. let's just say, let's just grant, for example, that it's possible that Jesus was not granted this one exception to be to be pulled off. They like to have the bodies up for three days. Uh, they like to then they throw them in this mass grave. Well, if Jesus had been thrown in a mass grave, it has incredible explanatory power in terms of this empty tomb narrative, because at no point in time could anyone have produced the body. Like that, I often hear that as, and I think I heard you say that it was well. Why didn't you know? Why wouldn't the Romans just produce the body if the body still be there? Well, because most of the time it was thrown into a mass grave, uh, and again, that that doesn't require. There's good evidence for that. That's what's a common practice, but also that doesn't require uh, any kind of ad hoc leaps of faith. Um, so to my, to me, uh, a mass burial grave has incredible explanatory power. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that uh, that's what uh, the, every, everything that we understand about Roman uh, crucifixion was that, you know, they were buried in mass graves and all that. But the gospel accounts, my question is that, you know, the gospel accounts seem to make an exception here. Uh, and in, in the opening speech, well, I pointed out that Paul, there was... Not, not the gospel accounts. So the gospel accounts... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just getting to the, the, the address the issue on the uh, common graves method now. Uh, I just wanted to ask you initially whether Paul believed that or what you thought of Paul. So you, your, your answer is that you are, you're believing he's just quoting the creed. Yeah, uh, he's, just, he's just wrote reciting the, the, yeah. the, the, the creed he was told. Yeah. Okay. Do you believe that Paul actually, uh, when, when he says, believe, do you believe Paul believed in a bodily resurrection of Christ or that he believed it was a spiritual assumption? Um, I am open to both of those answers. Uh, I will. I will say, as I said, I I, I don't didn't want to get into historicity on this. Right. Um, I don't know what Paul believed. I Paul does not talk about Jesus in a physical manner. In I think you would agree with that. That there's nothing you can point to in Paul's letters, the the legitimate Paul's letters or the uncontested Paul's letters, let's say. Um, yeah. Where he's pointing something. So. But let me just grant you, just for this sake of this conversation, sure, he believed in a bodily resurrection. Um, he still yada yadas, to borrow from Seinfeld, straight from burial. There's no empty tomb. He just yada yada straight to Peter saw him. Right. Yeah, so, I, I, I believe. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you know, so I guess like Paul, uh, I, obviously you can infer that, you know, he was buried, maybe in a tomb. I, I hear a lot of Christians say, well, that means a tomb. Not necessarily. Buried, you know, can mean lots of things. Right. Okay. Uh, now, getting back to, to the mass grave concept, basically, I want to just, we, we, you seem to have, in your rebuttals, affirmed and, and admitted that you're okay with accepting, granting uh, that Jesus died uh, for the sake of argument. Sure. Uh, and even, you, even if you want to say a Pontus Pilate or, you know, I, I'm okay with all those things. Right. The second fact, then, it's you, you talked about the mass grave dumping, which, which we understand to be true. But what I'm saying is that the gospel account seemed to offer uh, an alternate uh, explanation for this, that it was a public figure. Uh, and I'm just wondering, uh, do you have any idea of anything that is a competing account to this, uh, historically speaking? Now, just to be clear, you're talking about the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, Fair, Joseph of Arimathea. stepped in yeah. at the last minute. So yes. uh, it's my competing theory that Joseph of Arimathea didn't exist, that he wasn't even a guy, right. that, right. you know, that this is something that Mark created and the other, well, either Mark created or it was became the tradition that Mark wrote down and right. that the other gospel writers borrowed, you know, that was the explanation uh, that, that Jesus stepped in and that, or that Joseph of Arimathea stepped in. We don't have any other accounts of Joseph of Arimathea uh, being in the sand. No, no, of course, 
absence of evidence and all that, you know, that doesn't mean anything. But there's right. certainly no evidence that this wasn't a literary creation. And I, of course, you know, you and I are going to differ. I tend to think that a lot of the Gospels are literary creations, not things that actually happened. So, right. um, you know, without more evidence, I, I guess for me, my competing theory is Joseph of Marathia didn't exist. There wasn't actually a tomb. Um, I, I feel like this thing was, well, anyone could have walked over and looked at it. That's not how things work. People don't know. I don't know where other people's tombs are located, even in my small town. Like, it, that's just, that's not the way these things work. Um, okay. And even with the 500, um, it's like, well, some of the 500 are still alive. You can go talk to them. Well, it doesn't name them. And it's not like you can say, well, I didn't see it. I must not be one of the 500. Like, how does that even make sense? Like, in terms of how are you going to, how is anyone going to track down one of these 500? If you didn't see it, you're just going to, well, I, I must not be one of the lucky ones. Like, it, it doesn't hold right. a lot of water for me. Right. Thanks. I just I just wanted to get yeah. your view on that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so I, I guess I would say Joseph Arimathea was literary, if that's the answer to the question. Okay. Uh, now the, the other thing I want to tackle is basically one of the main arguments I brought out today uh, was that uh, the the what confirmed the belief of the disciples eventually, what clinched it for them, was really the the scriptures, which when Jesus opened their minds to it. Uh, I would just like to ask, you know, what, what's your thoughts on scripture, biblical prophecies confirming? Uh, what Jesus said. Uh, your thoughts on that? Sure. So um, I tend to find that the biblical prophecies are very uncompelling to me uh, in that. So as, as an example, I've worked uh, writing comics and movies a lot of my career, um, and I know about writing sequels. And it was actually my job at one of the companies I worked for that we had to line up. Here's what happened in the original and we're writing the sequel. So we have to make sure that, you know, this thing, I was a continuity editor, right, to make sure that these things happen. So I look at Matthew, for example, and his mistake with the Colts, where he thinks that for some reason there's two Colts instead of, you know, he did, he, he was looking at the, um, the Septuagint translation, thinking that there should have been two Colts when really in the Hebrew, there was only one. Um, and, you know, so he, so he made up this elaborate story where 40 seconds left. Uh, he made, sorry. Um, I just, I think the prophecies are, are post hoc. Um, to me, if you ask any Jew, if you, ask any Jewish rabbi, they are not convinced that these were actual prophecies. Um, so I don't understand why I should be if, if the people who hold that stuff to, if the people who know that material best don't think that the things that were prophecies were, were prophecies. Okay. Just leave it at that. We've got a, yep. Great. So Samuel ends with 10 seconds left and now we are going to switch so now it's going to be the same deal, eight minutes, but instead, Paul is going to be asking Samuel the questions in this section of the cross exam. So I'm going to set the clock, and the floor is yours, Paul. So you said you're a presuppositionalist, and I, I sort of apologize if yeah. I squinted that. That's, that's, um, I, I kind of feel like um, if you're a presuppositionalist and you feel like just if the Bible says it, it's just true, um, why do you go down the path of looking at evidences and checking out the extra biblical and all that kind of stuff. Like what is, what, if you're just going to believe that whatever the Bible wrote is true, shouldn't you just sort of accept it and not, you know, bother yourself? Why would someone like yourself be bother looking at the evidence question? Yeah, I think maybe the, the, you, maybe I could expand a little bit on what presuppositionalism means for me. Uh, it is not just presupposing the Bible is true and there's no evidence, period. I think that's the mischaracterization of what presuppositionalism means. Uh, I, I began my apologetic endeavor as an evidentialist. Uh, but what eventually uh, converted me, if you like, uh, to presuppositionalism uh, was uh, the fact that I realized that everyone has presuppositions. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we end there, but rather my pursuit of evidence is rather an epistemological process bearing in mind that I already hold these presuppositions and then I go through the, what we commonly call the test for truth, uh, the correspondence theory to see whether it corresponds to reality, the coherence theory to see whether it is cohesive or is it self-contradictory, uh, the, the existential uh, test for truth, you know, whether is it pragmatic, a lot of tests for truth. So what I think is a mischaracterization here, Paul, is that when you say that you're a presuppositionalist, you're not saying that I believe the Bible is true, period, because the, you're right, you're absolutely right. If that is what it means, then the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, that should be the end of our endeavor. But on the contrary, what we are saying is we have a presupposition, uh, whether it's naturalistic or supernaturalistic, we all have presuppositions, but we work from the basis of our presuppositions as opposed to just looking for the evidence. And, and let me just give you a good example of this. If we say that you require evidence in order to know that something is true, what evidence is there to back up the statement that you require evidence in order to believe that evidence is true? It seems that that itself is a presupposition. So I find it very hard to actually um, approach apologetics as an evidentialist, uh, bearing in mind that I have my own presuppositions. So I hope that I've clarified that my oh, approach- actually, and I, love, yeah. I love that answer. Yeah. Um, that's not the answer that I get from North Americans who say they're presuppositionalists, shall we say. Um, right. So I, I actually love your answer. Uh, that's great because you're open to possibly being wrong. Um, would you then also say that the Bible is inerrant? Oh, yes, uh, inerrancy uh, for me. Uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, inerrancy for me is uh, not, uh, William Lane Craig, I believe, uh, was quoted saying, inerrancy is a tertiary doctrine, uh, where if you point out the zombies in Jerusalem, for example, and those kind of things, uh, they're going to basically push that off and say that, you know, it's, it, it maybe is about some apocalyptic event. Uh, but no, I believe in inerrancy, meaning that uh, the autographs, uh, it's inspired by God, it is not wrong. And in fact, I go beyond inerrancy to say that the scriptures are infallible, meaning, uh, I, I think you know what, what that means as well. Yeah. yeah. So I actually was going to go to the zombie thing, but now you've said, I think you've, you've agreed that if you, if you had a time machine and you went to Jerusalem on that day, that you don't think that there, you would have seen zombies that day. Oh, no, no. I, I say that I accept the scriptures, whatever they say. Uh, oh, so, so you think that, so if you had, if you were in Jerusalem on the day Jesus died, you think you would have seen the streets filling with people who are dead? Um, I, I think I, I don't think being filled, but it just says there were individuals who rose from the dead with him. Uh, and that is compatible with my theological framework that uh, Jesus descended into hell and basically the ascension. Uh, I mean, this, Jesus descended into Hades uh, and that the ascension is basically when he ascended, people went up with him. You know, as Paul says later on, when he ascended, he took the train with him. Uh, so uh, that, that is consistent with my theology. I'm not quite sure I can back that up. So I wouldn't go into a debate saying, can I prove that happened? I'm prepared to say that I don't have sufficient evidence for that. But okay. granted the rest of the things, uh, I would be, be happy to say that because scripture says so at this point, unless you can point me on other areas where scripture is wrong, uh, I'm convinced that uh, you know, scripture is right, inerrant. So, you know, on the zombie thing, um, do you, would you agree at least that it is odd that we have various records of, you know, Jesus's trial that day in extra biblical accounts, but we don't have any records of, you know, what seems to be the bigger news item. You'd think if there was news that it would have led with, oh, a bunch of dead people invaded our city today. Like, do you, uh, would you agree that it's a little odd that we have, uh, we have third party accounts of, uh, of the trial, but not of the zombie event? 
Um, I mean, yeah, I, on, definitely I would have to say, yes, I agree with you. That it seems a little bit odd, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll happily grant that. Uh, but what I would say is when these so-called dead people appeared, uh, they didn't quite appear as dead people, did they? They appeared as living people, uh, and supposing they go telling people yeah, but that people they were... Knew they were Sure, but you know if you know if if people who we knew well were dead came back. I mean, we're not talking Walking Dead this year. Anyway, I'll I'll drop that because I actually wanted to ask you. Uh, you you seem to challenge the idea of extraordinary claims, the extraordinary evidence. So I gave the example of you know um, Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and you know if I if I was to come to you and say you know what Abraham Lincoln owned a horse, you know, would you ex- just pretty much accept that? Uh, I mean, yeah, I would. Uh, it, it makes logical sense. I think there's good evidence to believe that. Yeah. Sure. So if I said to you that Abraham Lincoln hunted vampires in his spare time, mm-hmm. and there are books that talk about this. Yes, I'm aware. But you know, I, I would just again ask for evidence. But I wonder whether it would be... Uh, I mean, again, I'm speaking not from a uh, presuppositional point of view. I'm just speaking as an epistemological yeah, yeah. endeavor. Uh, I, I don't think I would have... The ne- I, I wouldn't necessarily require, have the bias to say, give me more evidence for that. I think the common example that is used is if I told you I had a dog in my backyard versus if I had a dinosaur in sure. my backyard. Yes. Uh, I mean, the same principle works. I mean, if you give me sufficient evidence, I'm prepared to go where the evidence leads. Um, yeah, that, that's my but, short but, answer. But with the resurrection, I would argue it's a little bit different, though, uh, because but you, but you just told the foundation. Me the but you, you just told me that the whole thing of extraordinary claims requires more evidence. Yeah. Was a pre, was itself a presuppositional? I yes. I, I think I just demonstrated that we can test whether that's true because the level. Well, first of all, you, you know, I think you would agree that everyone's level of of what is sufficient evidence is different. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's so I just you know provided a test, and I think that, you, that we could provide many similar tests uh, that people will accept a more mundane claim on less evidence than a more extraordinary claim. Would you agree that we can test that? <laughs> No, I, I would agree left. that I would agree that people would accept that. But again, I'm talking about to be rationally justified in knowing something. Again, as I mentioned, that I'm speaking from an epistemological perspective. Sure. I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't actually shut it down and say it was wrong. What I said is from an epistemological perspective, and, and I think you highlighted that the who 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 ultimately determines what is sufficient. Uh, but from an epistemological perspective, you know, if you require sufficient evidence, of course, that is subject to debate. What is sufficient? Okay. Um, I think that I, I think we can end there before I open another can of worms. 20 seconds left. So, uh, well, okay. Shit, one can, more. We, <laughs> can we, can we just talk a little bit about, uh, I know it'll be boring a little bit from time, but, uh, the authorship of the, the gospels. Yes. So, um, are you open to the Samuel? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm open for it. Yeah. Cause you, go ahead. You, brought, you brought that up. So the authorship of the gospels, of course, um, what is your understanding of how, of the traditions of how we got the the names for the gospels, and let's just let me just pick. Um, I don't care. You can pick pick anyone's you want, but I, I was specifically thinking of Matthew and Luke. But you can pick whichever ones you want. Yeah, I, I think the way that people knew uh, that these were, for example, I, first of all, we have very Paley uh, cites a lot of early church fathers that uh, you know recognized the epistles and a lot of the gospels to be recognized as scripture. Uh, one of the reasons for that is also uh, that based on the number of copies that they have. So if, if it actually, I, I did a, a 10 hour presentation on this. I'm just trying to succeed and push this yeah, into yeah. a short time as possible. So basically the way you would know is if the apostle is giving, for example, John writes uh, and gives it to the church in Ephesus. There were no, uh, in Revelation, he writes to the seven churches, for example. Um, 
you see, there is no address or, or GPS that would take you to the seven churches. Whoever is going there had to be known to the disciples there because, number one, uh, there is an imminent persecution. Of course, in the time of John, it was... Yeah, Domitian, you're talking about uh, Revelation, which is not the Gospel of John. Okay, uh, let, let's, let's take the Gospel of John then, for example. You know, if, if John... Or, I'm, I'm just saying it's a common principle regardless of whether it's the Epistles or John. If John is writing to someone, uh, and of course, we believe if John is writing the Gospel of John, he was writing to his place in Ephesus, in Ephesus, where he was in Asia Minor. Uh, basically, he would be known. He could hand this down either personally, or even if he were to send someone uh, to take it to them, it would be someone reliable that the church already knew because there wasn't going to be a signboard outside there saying, hey, this is the church of Ephesus, uh, which would invite trouble. Yeah, I'm sure you'd agree. So the way it would be done it, is it these guys who know the church go there. Paul would send Timothy or Epaphras, uh, someone that the church knew. And when they go there, they know it is from Paul. They would rapidly copy this. And the way we knew what was authentic from what was not, the forgeries, is based on the number of copies we have. If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I hope I'm not wrong on this. The Gospel of Judas only has about two or three copies. Whereas if you take, for example, the others, you, you're talking about hundreds, uh, if not thousands of copies. That sure, That's think, the way that the church okay. knows which is authentic. So you are, because we don't need to go down this, because we can be a whole separate debate, and maybe James would like to host yes. this sometime. Um, <laughs> so you are, you are putting a, a lot of weight on tradition. Whereas I tend to be more of a textual critic. So like if the textual critic in me says the passages in John where it talks about the disciple, uh, it's talking about him in the third person and then immediately talks about we, the author talks about we without including John. So, you know, I think I, I, I'm, I guess I, I lent, that answers the question. You, you hold to the traditions of the church uh, much more highly than I do, and I guess that's that's the answer to that question. So yeah, I don't want to steal time. I don't want to steal time from the audience, though. Just a quick, just a quick uh, final word on that. Uh, traditions with regards to uh, the authorship, uh, basically, because I just understand that the authorship, the way they recognize which were canon, which were the standard, which did not meet the criteria, was basically on whether you recognize the author. If it was the apostles, it is accepted. If it's not the apostles, it's rejected. But sure, I'll but just end with have, that. But you have Matthew, for example. The only thing we know about Matthew, the only reason they call it Matthew is because Papias, who was uh, yes. quoted by well, yeah. the other guy. Yeah, I mean, they, that was supposedly written in Hebrew, and this was not written in Hebrew. We know, and why would, if Matthew wasn't, if Matthew was a first-hand witness, why did he copy so much from Mark? Like, why would you copy from someone who wasn't a witness when you were a witness? Like, it's just a weird whole thing. But I, I gotcha. Like, I, I tend, I'm a textual critic and you're a, you uh, like tradition. So I think that's a great answer to, we can head to the audience for. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So very excited. Thank you both for that stimulating uh, cross-exam. I am... I just have to say, I'm so impressed by how much both of you have read. I'm like, wow, you guys have really prepared. This is exactly what I've kind of dreamed of in terms of like a great debate of people calling on primary sources and using historical criteria. So this has been really fun. And anyway, we're going to start with the Q&A. Yeah, I think so, Samuel and I are going to be friends after this, right? We're going to chew yeah, it out. Yeah, of course, definitely. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. This is, yeah, as well as your guys' mutual respect for each other has been really fun. So uh, I'm going to start the Q&A, starting the clock. And this is a question for Samuel. This is from Pine Creek. Doug asks, what would change Samuel's mind or at least lower his confidence that Jesus rose from the dead? And just one second, I want to ask you guys before we start the Q&A, uh, would you guys like to give the other person a response? 
to your answer or do you want to just have it go bing bang boom of answer that question go to the next question etc uh, I think on this question, for example, I wouldn't really have much input, so I'd be willing to just. I think we can play it question by question whether it needs. So that works for me. That. that works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. So then, uh, Samuel, if you want, I can repeat the question. Otherwise, if you remember it, the floor is yours. Yeah. Again, bear in mind, in my opening speech, I said what ultimately convinced the disciples was not the empty tomb, was not the post mortem appearances. Uh, it was, in fact, the scriptures. If you can give me, uh, again, I, I guess probably uh, this question, what, what would change, affect my confidence, I think is a really a question of what would, or, or rather what should, uh, and basically what ultimately would. I, I don't know what would ultimately, as I said, I'm a presuppositionalist. I'm a bit stubborn in my beliefs. I have questioned and be skeptical of my belief, nearly lost my faith a couple of times, um, but I'm, I'm not really sure what would convince me uh, that Jesus did not raise from the dead. But let me tell you what should convince me that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You would have to go to scripture and show me exegetically uh, that basically Jesus was a hoax, like what a Jewish rabbi would do if I was having a debate with a Jewish rabbi, as Paul said earlier. He would go through the text and show me, for example, why Isaiah 53, you know, I'm, I'm interpreting it wrong. It's part of the songs of Isaiah that comes earlier. The servant is Israel. Uh, you would have to do something of that line because ultimately, remember my authority is scripture. If you can challenge that, it is falsifiable. Prove to me it is not. And I think that should uh, ultimately affect my confidence in that. But again, uh, being honest here, uh, I, I don't know if it would, uh, because again, uh, we all sometimes can be quite caught up in our beliefs. So what should and what would? hope that answers the question. You bet. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. And Paul, it sounded like you were, you didn't feel yeah, this was I'll a my, my confidence is already low enough. You bet. And so <laughs> we're, we're going to switch over now. So this is a question for Paul. This is from CGH who asks, what extraordinary, what extraordinary evidence would you accept for the resurrection or nothing would ever convince you? Question mark. Just want to hear his opinion. Yeah. So I think about this a lot. Uh, what would convince me? Um, this is so. Here's this is where I'm just being honest now. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not a methodolog. I'm not a naturalist. I, I think that there might be a supernatural realm. I think that, um, you know, all those things are are possible. Uh, miracles are potentially possible. That said, um, for me, the, the the requirement of evidence would be so high. So, for example, even if Jesus appeared to me right now, like he appeared to the Apostle Paul, and some people suggest I should change my name to Saul just to be, you know, just to, to <laughs> to have the, the, the flip effect there. Um, I would first question my own mental faculties. I would first question uh, whether this vision that I saw was really real versus, so if I'm being honest, like that, I'm not even sure that would do it. Um, my, I guess my standard answer is, I don't know, uh, but if there is a God, uh, God knows what it would take. Um, and he has chosen for whatever reason uh, not to supply that to me and or to make my brain uh, require a level of evidence that he's not willing to provide. Um, and that, you know, it, for me, that is, that puts the ball in God's court for, for me. Um, and I think a lot of Christians would actually agree that, that you know, no one's saved by the evidence, you're saved by, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit and all, and all those kind of things. So I, that's probably consistent with, with the Christian worldview. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, Sam, anything to add to that? No, I just want to say I completely agree with you. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So next question. 
this is actually a question for Samuel. And Kendall says, Paul mentioned accounts of people dying for things they knew were false. Can he or someone else provide details or sources on that? Oh, maybe this is a question for Paul from Kendall Fry. Uh, I think sure. he wants so, your sources. So um, I actually referenced, for example, the the 9-11 pilots. Now, uh, you know, I think everyone in, I both think both of you would agree that the Islam religion uh, is at least not completely true. Um, you know, that the, that the Quran isn't, uh, isn't something that is inerrant and to be followed. Um, so we know the ideologies of a, of a suicide bomber who is bombing in the sake of Islam, I think you guys would agree is someone who have, you know, died for something that was false. Um, we also have, and I'm blanking on whether it was the Mormon. Yes. Um, Joseph Smith, right. Was, was shot, um, was shot in the street, uh, over, uh, you know, the religion he created, which he knew was false. You know, like, so, so there's not only that, um, but also um, spies, a, a spies will, will die all the time for, you know, for, to protect evidence because they, they feel like the, the, the cause, um, the cause that they're dying for is, is, you know, better, is worth more than their individual life. I mean, I guess those would be off the top of my head, uh, some examples. Um, and again, I just like to reiterate, we have no idea if the apostles died for their faith. We just have no idea. So I don't like, I don't buy that. That's a valid, uh, argument. Hmm. Samuel, any response? Um, I, I'll, I'll save it for the, for the closing statement. You bet. All right. Okay. Next question is, this is kind of similar to one we had heard before. So this is for Paul and, uh, if you want to interpret it differently in order to still use it, we can. It says, what would change Paul's mind or at least increase his confidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, well, already answered that, right? No, that's good. But I would I, increase my confidence. Uh, there would be lots of things that increase my confidence, though. So we could have um, more. We could have a lot more third hand, you know, uh, ex extra biblical uh, attestations that would at least raise my confidence. It, it probably wouldn't get me all the way, but if someone outside of the Bible said they saw Jesus somewhere, that, that would help. Gotcha. Okay. So next one, this is for Samuel. So this is from Ocean Keltoy, if I'm pronouncing it right. He asks, is Samuel holding the resurrection as a historical claim? And if so, can he explain how the resurrection worked? That would be necessary to be considered a historical fact. Uh, I suppose when you say, you, I hope I'm understanding the question right. Yeah, I, I hold, definitely hold the resurrection to be a historical claim. How did the resurrection work? I think you're talking about the process, whether it was spiritual assumption or whether it was bodily. I, I think... I hope I'm getting the, the question right. Um, I believe that basically on the third day um, that uh, God raised Jesus from the dead, that his spirit went back to his body again, which uh, in our theology, eschatology to be more precise, um, is what uh, we, we anticipate when Jesus comes again. So the Christian hope in a sense uh, is not that uh, we die and go to heaven. The Christian hope is the second coming of Christ where we will be bodily 
raised again. The bodily resurrection is what ultimately we hope for. Um, and in fact, that's why I was, I, was, I was asking Paul the question because 2 Corinthians 5, Paul seems to imply very clearly, um, kind of a contradiction, right? Imply clearly. Um, Paul seems to imply bodily resurrection. Uh, in fact, when he says, you know, absent from the body, present Lord, but we wait for the day when, you know, we shall be in back, you know, this will basically, we'll come back to this body again. That, that kind of a claim is there in Pauline theology. It is both in uh, First Corinthians, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians is in Second, First Corinthians as well. So um, if you're talking about a mechanism of how Jesus rose from the dead, I would say it's a bodily, it appeared. And yes, I'm making a historical claim at this point. Okay. And Ocean Keltoy wanted me, wanted to clarify uh, he was asking in particular w about what physically happened. And so uh, you might say like proximal or distal explanations here. Uh, I think he wants a proximal explanation in the physical sense of like uh, how that might be explained. Yeah, so basically we believe when Jesus died on the cross, his spirit left the body. Uh, of course, uh, when uh, Jesus rose from the dead, basically the opposite happened. His spirit once again, took over his body. But again, this is a new glorified body. It's not the same as the human body we have here. That's why you see uh, the resurrection body of Christ, uh, which again, as I said earlier, is what we believe we will have one day. Um, able to eat, as Jesus did in Luke 24, that's an important one. But uh, at the same time, there's also some supernatural elements there with it where it can actually pass through walls and all that. So again, please bear in mind, I am not making a naturalistic claim here. Uh, I'm just basically saying that the body was no longer there when Jesus rose from the dead. In that sense, it is physical. But the fact that it can pass through walls means it's not merely physical, it's much more than that. I'm afraid that's, that's as far as I'll be able to get to go because it's a, what scripture calls a mystery. Um, and it, it's called it that for a good reason as well. I think you would agree that reading 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the best answer to that question, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just wanted to ask you actually as a follow-up, if I could. Um, sure. Do you think that what Paul saw was Jesus's physical body, given that uh, given that it was post ascension? Yeah, I, I believe what Paul saw was the glorified body of Christ uh, seated at the right hand. It's the same thing that Stephen saw, uh, basically. Yeah, it's not it's not the same as what Thomas saw. It's, it's the same. It's the same. It's you, the same. You, think, you think it was the same body? So the yes. ascension was just the temporary relocation, as far as you're concerned. Yes. Okay. Uh, and what I mean, when you say temporary relocation, what do you mean by that? Well, you, you like Jesus ascended into the clouds, so physically he, he you know, his feet yeah. rose off the ground. Yes. At least. Um, yes. And then, but you would agree that Paul's vision was after the ascension, right? Like. Yeah. And so, yeah. At, so if if it's the same body. Same body. Then Jesus had to at least come back down from the clouds, or however the mechanism. Yes. Works. Okay. Yes. But at the same time, of course, I maintain that. Remember, I said earlier that, you know, he could eat uh, and at the same time, sure. you know, pass through walls as well. So there are some elements of it, which is physical, some elements which we don't quite But then also invisible to his, Paul's companions somehow. Um, okay, because that again has been brought up as one of the contradictory accounts of the scripture, because if you see Paul's testimony... Oh, that's, but that's hearing. That's, like, I didn't even bring that up. But in chapter yeah, yeah. 9, you can't hear him and they can hear him in 22. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay with that i mean whatever yeah uh, so what, but, what in I meant to say accounts, they, but in both accounts they can't see them to me that's a bigger deal yes 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 that's right yeah okay i'll grant that yeah yeah okay go ahead james sorry no problem that's all right so 
All right. We have a lot of questions coming in for Samuel. So Samuel, hope you don't mind. I, I got skeptics. a drink. I'm good. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> basically we have from frustrated atheist question for Sam. Why is the resurrection significant? And they ask, we know live burial was an issue so much that safety coffins were popular all the way up to the early 19th century. So I think there might be two questions in okay. this comment. So namely, why is the resurrection significant? And I'm not sure if they mean in some sort of teleological sense, like, like theologically or and they follow up immediately with we know live burial was an issue so much that safety coffins were popular all the way up to the early 19th century yeah I, i'm not I, I, I don't know much about the safety coffins uh I, i'm not quite sure what that means as well you know so i'm just going to let just basically i don't know to that but let me address the first question uh first part of that question which is uh why is the resurrection so significant um for a few factors uh, number one, it, it's basically, as the Apostle Paul himself uses, it was the validation of Jesus' claim that he was who he claimed to be, uh, the incarnate Son of God, who was equal to the Father himself. So if someone just makes those claims up, you have every reason to be skeptical of them. And if they could prophesy and raise themselves back up from the dead again, uh, then, of course, that would be a what would consider a sufficient validation of that of their claim. So I think this is what uh, was necessary for the disciples to base all, to first of all know that whatever Jesus claim was true in the sense that he could validate it by raising himself up from the dead again. The other thing is, of course, remember Acts 17 was uh, was a 16 onwards when Paul is speaking to the Athenians. He says in the past, verse 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, but as I said in my last YouTube video in my channel, what is the basis for Paul to make such a bold accusation against the philosophers of his time? Repent. Uh, he says, for God has given assurance of this. God has given proof of this, as the NIV translate that word, uh, pistin, uh, to basically mean that God has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. So it was not so much the validation of Jesus' claims. It was the validation of the gospel which we proclaim. And I think that's why it is very significant. Of course, beyond that, I have to point, of course, that Jesus said it was important because the Old Testament prophesied it to be important as well. So uh, put those elements together. And I think that you, you get it just of why I consider the resurrection to be quite significant. Um, and, and, I didn't, and I didn't quite, uh, I quite forgot to mention that uh, it, Paul also uses it as the basis for our hope uh, that we too will be raised uh, if we put our faith in Christ. And I would just add, when I was a Christian in, in the fundamentalist, uh, inerrantist place I grew up, uh, it was actually just part of straight up defending scripture. The same reason that uh, my denomination felt it had to defend the flood or defend a six day creation. Uh, and I, I'm trying to remember if the exact verse number, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 11. Uh, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, my teaching is useless yes. and so is my faith. I mean, that's a verse that as a, as a Christian, you got to defend that. Paul said, if that's not true, like, it's not even that it's important. It's Paul said that it was important. So we better defend this thing to the death, just as, you know, Ken Ham would defend the Ark to the death. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that chink in the armor. If that, if that armor is chinked with that nugget, then it all falls apart. So, right. Gotcha. And I'm excited for these next two questions, especially. These are interesting. So uh, we have one from CGH who asks Paul, in your opinion, is the Apostle Paul trustworthy or a fraud? Uh, 
so this is goes to a little bit. I, I think the Apostle Paul um, is. So I think he saw visions. I think he felt so guilty about the persecution of the church that he had a mental break and, and snapped. I believe that everything that Paul wrote, Paul believed. Um, so in that way, he's trustworthy. However, I do not believe that Paul wrote all 13 books. And depending on whether you count Hebrews or not, I don't believe that Paul wrote all those books. So I only count the six uh, books that are sort of what are called the undisputed uh, Pauline uh, epistles. So, for example, I don't think that he wrote First and Second Timothy. Um, you know, uh, so some of the stuff that's in there, and that actually gets into some of the weird, like anti-women, anti, like some of the rules about the church. Um, so those get weird. Uh, but I don't think Paul wrote those, so Paul's not on the hook, in my opinion, for some of those opinions. Uh, I'm sure that's probably way out there for some of your Christian viewers. But um, look up the look up the undisputed Pauline letters versus the disputed ones, um, and I would say that Paul believed everything that was written in those six books. Is that a, is that an answer? I don't know. I think so. Like I think, uh, yeah, it's like a didn't mean to paint you. In a, I think that. You answered well. So okay. we will move on to the next point or next question. So this is from Godless Engineer asks, uh, this is for Samuel. Other gods have died and rose again with people seeing them after their deaths. What makes Jesus so special? Again, I think I answered that the same question uh, in that I, I suppose you're referring to Osiris and, and all those horrors and all those claims uh, of the Mediterranean claims about other rising and dying gods. Um, I mean, I know apologists have said, you know, there's nothing similar, you know, basically their bodies were ripped to shreds and they were thrown to hell. That's not what we mean by resurrection. Uh, but I, I guess that uh, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Uh, basically, repeat the question again. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, I got it, I got it. Yeah, so basically, back to what I was saying in the first thing, the reason why we know it's different, uh, the foundation for the claim is not just that this random person, Jesus of Nazareth, just died and rose from the dead, and then we, we ought to believe it because it's a random event and, and it's a big exclamation mark to the rest of the world. Uh, notice I'm, I, I'm trying to make that as clear as possible in the opening speech, uh, but rather that these are what the Old Testament scriptures that were written thousands of years before, maybe 2,000 years before, uh, were prophesying. And Jesus saw himself, whether he was right or wrong, as the fulfillment of that. And that was why I say we should take the resurrection seriously, not because there are these good evidences, because I suppose you, you can come up with evidences for anything you want. But for me, the foundation of that was scripture ultimately. And I think that that is what sets the resurrection of Jesus apart from, say, the other rising and dying gods. You, first of all, there's that mythological element that is there. I wonder if even those people believe those events to be true uh, in, in the historical sense or whether they were basically, you know, they themselves considered it to be a mythopoetic, semi-myth, semi-reality lessons for us. Uh, but I'll just leave it at there. You betcha. All right. So thank you very much, Samuel. And next question is, this is also to Samuel. Why did you choose the Judeo-Christian religion to presuppose and not any other religion? Um, few, why did I choose the Judean religion to presuppose? I think, again, uh, I don't know why I presupposed it. Could be because I was born in a Christian family. I, I think in a sense that is irrelevant to whether it is true or not. I'm, I'm sure that's not what the claim is being made at the moment. Uh, but 
if you ask me why did I choose it, it's a personal choice question. I guess I was brought up in a Christian family. That's the honest answer to that question. Uh, but if you ask me why I think it has merit, uh, that's a different question altogether. And I think that one of the reasons that it may be controversial for me to say this coming from my country, uh, which for those of you who don't know is Malaysia, it's a Muslim country. But um, one of the things I think that gives merit uh, to the revelation of God to the people of Israel is the existence of the state of Israel till to this to this very day. I know this is not the topic of today's discussion, but for me, I when I look at the resurrection of the state of Israel back in 1948, uh, I, I as a Christian, a presuppositionalist, see the hand of God at work. The existence of the nation of Israel for me is evidence that uh, the God of Israel is not dead, and why we should take their scripture seriously. So that actually, if I can interject one question. Sure. Um, is there, of all the evidence we talked about tonight, is there any of it that you think absolutely requires a supernatural element? I, and I, I ask this because you, you talked about, you know, the, the resurrection of the, you know, Israel becoming a state again, or a country mm -hmm. again. Um, of all the things I listed, all the things, like you discount the, whether I have these naturalist uh, explanations for them. Is there one piece that you say there's only supernatural and there's absolutely no even possible natural explanation? Like, which is there a piece for you? Is the slam dunk supernatural or nothing? Uh, apart from the resurrection of Christ, uh, nothing else. Yeah. Apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is nothing else that I would say is the ultimate proof of the supernatural. In fact, it all leads up to that. But of course, if I could say the scriptures, in a sense, uh, in its predictive powers, uh, I would say that that for me is clearly supernatural. You, you you cannot discount it. I know, of course, that people say, hey, look at Nostradamus, you know, he's written wonderful stuff as well that should be put into it. Um, it's not the same. Uh, so for me, I, I consider the scripture and the resurrection of Christ to be the only things involved in, in that supernatural kind of slam dunk okay. thing you mentioned. But uh, when it comes to the other facts, you know, for example, that Jesus died, you're right. Uh, every human being dies, you know, and, and basically the empty tomb and so forth. It could have been stolen. Like anything could have happened. So those things could have naturalistic explanations. But the resurrection in scripture, I hold, again, once again, admitting as a presuppositionalist, um, is a supernatural event. So future reference, James, uh, we're, we're, we, Samuel and I should debate on prophecy someday. Oh, yeah. That would be great. I'm, I'd love to do it. I think it'd be fun. My guess is Samuel would enjoy it too. So that's cool. Uh, this is a question for Paul. So this is from Matthew who asks, uh, this is an interesting question. To Paul, what significance does the, Paul, the Apostle Paul's writings have to a modern skeptical audience? Should they read his works at all? No, I don't think that it has application for life. Um, Paul talks a lot about life within the church. Paul talks about, uh, he, I mean, Romans is a beautiful, if you want to read just a beautiful book, Romans is a beautiful book. As an atheist, I will, I will say that that is a well-crafted thing. So if you just want to read some ancient, um, some ancient theology that is very systematic, that's, that's beautiful. But I don't think there's any, I don't think there's truth in it. I don't think that we are, I don't think we are sinners. I don't think that we need to be saved from sin. So, you know, Paul's large message and, and good grief, who needs to read chapter after chapter about should we be circumcised or not? Like, I don't, you know, again, <laughs> those are tough reads. So uh, other than if you feel like you want to do counter apologetics uh, and or to read the beauty of Romans, then I would say no. Gotcha. So 
Uh, Samuel, unless you have anything to add, we'll jump to the next question, which is for you, Samuel. Yeah, go ahead. Please. So this is from Doug or Pine Creek asks, he says, Samuel said earlier that he almost left Christianity two times. Why? Um, okay. Uh, one of them was when I actually examined uh, the multiple views on the atonement. That was for me. And this was in my very early time when I was studying theology. Uh, when I saw the multiple theories of the atonement, for example, you know, because in my mind, I, I, grow up, I grew up thinking that this, there was only one view of the atonement. Jesus died for my sins and period. That's the end of it. But when you examine, for example, the governmental view of the atonement, you know, uh, Victor, uh, Christ, Christus Victor, uh, or, or basically the many other views that are out there, the moral influence theory, for example, uh, that perhaps was propagated by Pelagius, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that, you know, Christ's death is only there as a moral influence. He didn't die for your sins. He didn't take your shame on the cross. He didn't take the guilt. I actually began to kind of lose my faith because these these guys were challenging things that I thought was beyond any dispute. So uh, I, I struggled a lot in my early years in theology, partly because um, I didn't want to buy everything my lecturer said. So here, here's the interesting part about me. I, I studied theology in an Armenian institute. For those of you who know Christian theology, Armenians are those who believe in free will and uh, Calvinists like myself are those who hold to uh, basically divine sovereignty or compatibilism uh, where our human freedom is compatible with divine decree. But I, I studied theology under people who taught me Ar the Armenian theology, and yet I ended up being Calvinist all the way through because I don't easily absorb what people say, but rather what I try to do is to critically analyze everything. In fact, my father back then uh, was an Armenian himself. And of course, thank God I was able to convert him. But the point I want to say is that when I examined all these different views of the atonement uh, to, uh, to look at, it, it really shook my faith. The other thing that really shook my faith was when I was looking at some of the Jewish material uh, that basically said that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah because he broke Jewish law. Jesus broke the Sabbath laws. Jesus broke a lot of uh, Jewish laws. Uh, in fact, he says Jesus disregarded Jewish tradition, which to the Jews they considered to be on par with their scriptures itself. Because, for example, they would argue uh, the scripture tells you to be circumcised. It doesn't tell you what exactly to cut off. Uh, it's only their traditions that tell you what to cut off. The Jews, the, the scriptures say rest on the Sabbath. It doesn't tell you what day the Shabbat is. Uh, so when, when they pointed out the importance of tradition, uh, of the Jewish tradition, uh, which I don't for one hold, uh, I don't hold in, on par with scripture, and couple that with the fact that Jesus could not be the Messiah because the Messiah had to fulfill the Mosaic laws, not break them. Uh, that for me was a serious dent uh, in my Christology. And I began to have serious questions. I struggled with this for about, a few weeks, actually, uh, until I was able to find the answers to that. So, I, in in short, uh, those were the two times that the two times that I actually really uh, almost lost my faith in that sense. And again, just to re-emphasize, part of the reason is because I seriously want to consider all the objections there are. Gotcha. You bet. So we've got four questions. We'll try to get through these. Uh, I doubt we're going to be able to in the Q and A slot, but. We're going to shoot for it. So Standing for Truth asks Paul, he says, apparently Pelagia was a Christian. Uh, Pelugia, right? Pelugia, uh, it's it's a play on, you know, apol Apologia. Uh, oh, I get it. Now I get it. Okay, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it's Clever. my name okay. plus Apologia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he says, I'd like to know what he, Paul, believed was required and necessary for salvation while he was a Christian. Um. So... That's a great question. Um, so I believe the really 
I believe that salvation was a free gift that you couldn't earn by any works at all. Um, so I, all, to me, all you had to do is accept, you had to believe that Jesus existed uh, and accept the gift of salvation. And that was, everything else was tertiary. Um, my church held that you had to be baptized. There's lots of other tertiary things, but I personally, I, can, I had my, my salvation down to just, did you accept the gift or not? Gotcha. So next question is for Samuel. This is from Godless Engineer. And he actually asks, he says, Paul only got his info from visions and scripture. So how can you say he actually died with no actual witnesses that he did? Uh, I don't quite. Could you repeat the question again? Uh, let's see. I want to make sure I'm saying it right. So... It says, Paul only got his info from visions and scripture. How can you say he actually died with no actual witnesses that he did? I, I'm not exactly sure. Are you out there, godless engineer? I, I'm just uh, not sure if I'm putting it in the right words. John, right, can we, okay. like, we, can, we can move on to the next one, maybe, if you want. I don't know. So, I, I uh, let, let, me, let me just tackle the first part of that question, which, which I meant to actually uh, mention in my, in my closing statement. And that is that, you know, when we talk about uh, these visions that Paul has and all that, I mean, it is true that hallucination is a possibility. Uh, what I mentioned in the rebuttal section was that it's not possible to have uh, more than one person hallucinating the exact same thing uh, or the groups, for example, as you see in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. But... Uh, the point I wanted to make here is that, I mean, N.T. Wright puts it quite brilliantly, in my opinion, when he says that if you do see any visions of Jesus, bearing in mind that this guy, that this, this, this uh, person, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified brutally, um, the only conclusion you would come to was that he died. And at best, uh, the only conclusion you would get from these visions is that he had been assumed into heaven. Uh, may be accepted by the father, but it does not lead to the conclusion that he physically rose from the dead. So these visions that Paul had should have convinced him that Jesus basically died, that maybe now he's in a better place. It should not have convinced him that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And that's the point I think N.T. Wright was trying to make. I'm not sure but do you not, do you not think that uh, Paul was persecuting Christians? I, I'm willing yes. to also grant that. When he was persecuting these people, he knew he knew already that they believed that he came back. Like this was not a new idea that that's what the Christians believed, whether or yes. not it happened. So it's not like Paul when Paul saw a vision about them. It's not like oh, I wouldn't. I never it never occurred to me that Jesus might come from the dead. No, if you've been persecuting people and you're feeling guilty about it, and they're telling you, "Well, no, my Jesus raised from the dead," and then you see the guy, the first thing you're going to think is. Oh crap! I was wrong. He is raised from the dead because he was obviously standing there, talk, having a conversation. Like the people, the people, his companions with him heard him talking, so he was conversing with this thing. Like he, I, I guess I just don't buy that. That's impossible. It, it seems to me that he was at least aware of what the Christian mythology was. Yeah, so I would agree. Completely yet. agree with you. It's not like he had to pull that out of his head. As a, I understand that the Jews didn't believe as as much in this type of resurrection, but he knew what the claim was. Anyway, I'll 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 stop my. Sorry, I got a little yeah. there. I'll stop. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, anyway, just so I just weird. wanted to say that I agree. I agree that you know that that's 
perhaps not the only explanation to that, that, you know, that the explanation that he has uh, basically hallucinating, you know, as a result of that is true. But the point I want to make is that we have to two things to bear in mind. Number one, what ultimately again convinced Paul was the scriptures in the Old Testament. So that's one thing, of course, and the question is not meant to address that. So I'm just mentioning that, mentioning that in passing. But the other thing that is important uh, is that Paul was in fact a Jewish rabbi. And as Paul right, Apologia rightly said, uh, was not expecting a dying and rising Messiah. If anything, I felt uh, my, my response to that is he should have felt that Jesus was assumed to heaven. Uh, and if you look at his writings, now take for example, Grant that he was you know, really suffering from this mental illusions of Jesus being rising from the dead. If you examine his God, his, his written epistles, take Romans as, as Apologia said, um, that Paul wrote, you would understand that Paul's Christology and all that is driven, is taken out, uh, motivated directly from the Old Testament. So it's not just one vision that is convincing him. And that's basically the case I'm trying to make. So I accept what Paulo just says that there could be a uh, possibility that, you know, he's, he's being upset uh, or really depressed after persecuting the Christians and then having these visions. But I, I, in my opinion, I would think that's a little bit of a too simplistic uh, an explanation to this. What I would say is we have to consider both of those things uh, and take them into consideration. And in, in my humble opinion, think that that would be sufficient for thinking that in, in, when you look at Paul's writings, that this guy really knew what he was talking about. He was not someone suffering from mental delusion or uh, depression of some sort. Well, he could have been high functioning, you know, sociopath <laughs> as far as we know. Like, uh, I, and I guess I just wanted to add on like Second Corinthians 11, uh, Paul kind of describes that he has had ongoing visions. Like he, so, he has conversations with Jesus beyond that first day. So, you know, you know, his, his internal monologue, which is what I would imagine that it is, uh, you know, this stuff developed, but he had to backwards engineer. Okay. Well, this Jesus is alive now. How do I make sense of everything I've studied all my life? You know, so, I guess. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Um, what we'll do is Samuel, how about this? You can respond, Samuel, during your five minute closing statement sure. if you if you want to squeeze your response into but, but your thanks, closing. Paul, for that. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sure. I like our conversations. They're good. Yeah, I'm just I'm I agree, honestly yeah. just like thrilled about this. So this has been a total blast, and we're now gonna move into the closing statement. So your guys' last pithy and strong points. Uh, we're five minutes each. And so we're going to start since we started with Samuel. We will start with Samuel for the closings and then Paul will wrap up with the final five minute closing. So Samuel going to start the clock right now and the floor is yours. Yeah, it's been a blast to be able to uh, just share my convictions here and, and to have a conversation of this sort uh, with the decorum that we've had. Uh, thank you. And also thanks to uh, uh, James as well for organizing this. Uh, I'm, I'm really privileged to do this. Uh, in my closing five minutes, I just want to pull back the traits of what I've said in my opening statement. That is the foundation. Uh, anyone can claim that people rose from the dead. Any, any, any. This basically happens even today. Uh, about many Christian preachers claim they have died, seen heaven, come back again. You don't. You may have even heard of them yourselves. But ultimately, what proves the resurrection, in my mind, uh, I, I'm using the word proof historically again, uh, not not in the scientific sense. Uh, but what for me grounds the, the resurrection is that for me, the vast testimony of the Old Testament seems to point to it. If you look at Jesus in the Old Testament, um, the first thing, I mean, when Jesus, in fact, in Luke 22, 24, goes to the uh, disciples, one of the things he tells them is that this was what I told you while I was with you, that the, that the Son of Man had to suffer 
be uh, be buried, die, and basically be raised again, raised from the dead on the third day. If you look through the Old Testament, you look through all the animal sacrifices. And Tolojah is absolutely right. The Jews will reject this, and that's why I am not a Jew, and I, and I think that. Yeah, interpretations are wrong. Um, you look through these things. I, I, we, we didn't get to do this a lot, and I'm thankful that Paulo uh, Paulo has said that you know maybe potentially we could do the uh, prophecies one day. But if you look through the Old Testament, it's not just prophecies of the Messiah to come, as you see in Daniel chapter nine, as you see in Isaiah 53, where he will be pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and so forth. It's not so much these things, but it's also the typology you see with the animal sacrifices for the Passover, for example, where the blood of the lamb is put on the doorpost. I just did a, a talk on the, the seder, the way the Passover was conducted and everything in that points to Christ. The middle bread being broken in half, being hidden away, the mazza piece later being found in Jesus, identifying that as his body. Um, so I just want to say that for me, the ground to this is the Old Testament. Now, on top of that. You take all the other evidences that have been put forward. And for me, that was what ultimately was sufficient to convince the early apostles who had no idea whatsoever of a dying and rising Messiah, who had no predisposition to this understanding. It changed them. And, and one of the things I wanted to address was Paul said that, uh, uh, that you know, that they were, th there's no evidence that they died. Uh, we have, for example, in 2 Timothy, where Paul says that, uh, he knows he's going to be poured out. I, I remember that uh, Paulo just says he doesn't accept Second Timothy to be part of uh, Paul's work. But you have, for example, Josephus, who was talked about James, the brother uh, of Jesus, um, who was, you know, put to death by stoning, I believe. Uh, you have, uh, you had, uh, bear in mind the, the persecution for the believers from AD 64 to the great fire of Rome, all the way to 313 AD, the Edict of Milan, Christianity was persecuted by the Roman Empire. This was testified by the likes of uh, Tacitus. In fact, in the very same page that Tacitus talks about um, the, the, the death of Christ, he also talks about the persecution and the martyrdom and the brutality suffered by the Christians. In that very same page, uh, he does that. So, the point I want to make is this. These guys, we know they suffered. Uh, we know Christianity was the persecuted religion of the Roman Empire. Why did they do it? For me, regardless of whether Jesus raised from the dead, uh, the, 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 what I'm convinced about is that they were genuine believers in this. But now couple that with the scriptures, couple that with the fact that the post-mortem appearances of Christ. And it seems to me that we have a good case for this. Um, a minute 20 left. Um. I guess I will just uh, a minute twenty. Okay, let me let me just also look at some of the things that uh, uh, Paul said. Paul says that the apostle Paul did not mention a burial method. Uh, again, notice what I've said earlier that there are no competing uh, sources that argue otherwise. In fact, Paul says he was died, he was buried. And on the third day, now agreed, Paul is quoting someone else, but it is something that Paul is passing down as well as part of his teaching. So Paul didn't need to say the tomb because everything that we understand from Paul indicates that he was buried. Uh, as what the apostle said, if this was the tradition, the apostle said that he was buried uh, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The other thing, of course, that maybe the last thing I would say is uh, the embarrassment factor that I mentioned earlier was something that Josephus mentioned. In fact, of course, some may argue that Josephus used the testimony of women in his accounts. But in the cases where Josephus did that, I think it was the slaughter at Masada and uh, another place. Uh, that was because there were no men witnesses left. The testimony of women were considered to be the embarrassment factor for the day. Uh, the fact that the apostles use it means that, you know, there is slightly more merit to it than uh, basically saying Peter and John discovered the body. But I I'm just so thrilled 
uh, the opportunity to be able to have this dialogue in such a manner and uh, basically uh, share with you my conviction why I believe that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is trustworthy and why it is sufficient evidence uh, to basically go on to assert uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Samuel. And I gave Samuel about an extra 10 seconds. So, Paul, okay. if you want an extra 10 seconds, I'll <laughs> let you have that because I hate interrupting you guys. So, uh, Paul, no worries. I, that's the floor is yours. And you have five minutes and, and 10 seconds technically. So, thank okay. you again, I, both of you. Go ahead, Paul. Well, yeah, and again, again, I also want to thank uh, James and Samuel for for this great evening. Uh, I enjoy these discussions. I'm very passionate about this this topic, and I love to, um, uh, unlike my previous life, I love to be wrong. I love to learn new things, and I've learned new things. I've taken notes that I'm going to go back and, and learn some things tonight. Um, so the basic question we were trying to address tonight is, is there sufficient evidence for the resurrection of, of Jesus? And we talked about some basic facts. I was willing to grant that uh, Jesus was a human and that Jesus died. Those are two of the facts that, that are often talked about and, and uh, we're investigating here tonight. Um, there was some other facts discussed uh, that I don't necessarily agree with. There was the talking about an empty tomb. Uh, again, the earliest records that we have from Paul, there's no tomb. There's no, that's early, later mentioned that, uh, that's first discovered in Mark. Uh, and there's no external evidence for, for there even being an empty tomb. And we have a perf perfectly great natural explanation as to why this whole natural tomb thing doesn't matter. And that is because most crucifixion victims were, were um, put into anonymous mass graves. Um, so there's no reason to have to even try and explain the, the empty tomb beyond that, other than uh, much like what I would say most of the gospel is, is at least portions of it were fabricated. Portion of it may be correct. But, but I, like most historians, they treat it paragraph by paragraph. We, we don't say that because one paragraph is true that they're all true. Um, and then we got to the, the last point, which was that people said, and we both agree this needs to be explained, people said that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, it's possible they were correct. As we discussed in the historical method, we can't know if they were correct. Um, because by definition, this wasn't even really refuted. Um, uh, by definition, a miracle is the lowest probability event. The fact that a supernatural being came and changed the laws of nature has to be the lowest probability of, of all possible explanations. Um, so we have we have that. Um, so if if it's yes, that's the lowest probability. We can't talk, address it. Um, I'm I'm glad to hear that he didn't you know go into some talk about conspiracy theories. I don't think there was a conspiracy theory. I think that the apostles probably genuinely agreed. A combination of I believe that Paul uh, suffered a hallucination, and I believe that some combination of the other apostles, uh, based on mass hysteria, uh, they're you know we we know that they're fatigued. We know that they were we know that they were uh, hiding. We know all the things that we, that lead to mass hysteria and lead to individual hallucinations were true of the apostles at the time. Their life had just been devastated. Um, the fact that they might have imagined that Jesus rose from the dead is a very very plausible. It's not just a cursory, it's very plausible natural explanation for this. And in fact, uh, Samuel, as I, as I questioned him, agreed that none of the points that we discussed here lack a natural explanation. So therefore, for there to be sufficient evidence for it to be a resurrection, there would have to be at least some elements that aren't explained naturally, um, except for, he said, the resurrection, which of course, is that is the claim, it is not the thing. So the claim itself uh, is, not, is not evidence. Um, and I think the thing that Samuel was most telling was that he said that 
I'm, I presuppose that the Bible is true, and that is how I know that Jesus rose from the dead. He acknowledged that only a person who presupposes that the Bible is true can accept that there is sufficient evidence. So I guess the ultimate answer to that question is no. There is not sufficient evidence, historical evidence, to say that Jesus rose from the dead. If there was not, then a person wouldn't need to presuppose that the Bible is true. Um, so the burden has not been the burden has not been met. Uh, history will doesn't know if Jesus rose from the dead, but there isn't adequate historical proof to say that he did. And I think I, I'm done. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, both of you. That's excellent. Uh, Paul's uh, wrapped up about a minute early, and this has been a tremendous time. I honestly am thrilled. I could not have dreamt of a better debate than this. Uh, two people who have really hit the books and and brought it tonight, and you could see just a collision of ideas in a really good way. If you're a, an idea person out there, I'm sure you enjoyed it as well. So I once again want to say thank you to our debaters. And for those of you who are new here, feel free to hit that subscribe button if you want to hear more debates. And you can check out our debaters links down in the description in case you want to follow up and see their material. So again, thank you all for checking in and thank you again to our debaters. Thank you. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.